0: Snack production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, Managing Director and Founder of FW. I began life as a journalist, held senior roles in newspapers, edited Australia's largest magazine, and in 2018, I launched my own business. FW is dedicated to helping women navigate their working lives. But I've made my share of mistakes, especially as a leader. In this series, I go in search of answers to often complex leadership challenges. I explore the latest thinking on how to be a great leader and return to the tried and true methods to better understand what works and in what situations. If you're leading a team consisting of people in their 20s through to their 60s and 70s, you will experience a range of challenges. In this episode, we talk to a leading voice for people in their 20s. Yasmin Paul is a public speaker, board director and youth advocate. She is also a Rhodes Scholar, the Martin Luther King Jr. Centre's Youth Influencer of the Year and the top 25 young women to watch in international affairs. In this episode, we discuss the differences in managing people in their 20s, how businesses need to adapt to their demands and the lazy girl trend. Yasmin Paul, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. Now, I last saw you speak at the Jobs and Skills Summit and you were speaking on behalf of young people. What are you doing at the moment? I'm at Oxford at the
1: moment. i doing my second master's, um, doing a Master of Public Policy and last year did a Master of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies. And my interest right now is what does intersectional public policy look like? And I started that from seeing in Australia how there has been amazing movement around gender, but not much movement around so many other things. And how do we think about things like race or class or disability when we think about um, public policy problems? And aside from that, I'm the co-chair of It Happens Here, which is a campaign at Oxford uh, working on anti-sexual violence and working alongside survivors here to make the system a little bit more fair and equitable. Um, That was also built off the amazing conversations and movements in Australia, especially March for Justice. So, working here on the ground to make things a little better for survivors here in the UK
0: and internationally as well. I want to explore a bit of what you just said, particularly in terms of how you're seeing great things happening in gender in Australia, because it is a bit of a debate in Australia as to whether we are seeing great things in gender. So, I'll come back to this. But can you talk a little bit about how you became so influential? in terms of being a young voice in Australia, what were the mechanisms or the pathways that you took that gave you that platform?
1: I think for me, my light bulb moment was, one of them was when I'd finished high school and you know started doing some work with youth-led organisations. And it was the first time that I saw entire national campaigns led by young people 25 and under, all the way up to the CEO. And for me even though that seems intuitive that young people can do these things. I really had no idea that you could do it at my age when I was about 18. I really did think you had to be a CEO or I thought you had to have a degree in order to have the legitimacy to do things. From there, I started thinking, well, why is it that young people have all this amazing energy and momentum? And yet when I see politics, I don't see a single young person or, I mean, there was um, Jordan Steele-John in the Greens, but, you know, where. We could do far more around having youth representation and that kind of for me opened the door around starting to think about why is it that we don't see young people in spaces of power and then the further I kind of went along down into that journey I was thinking well as an Asian Australian woman, why don't I see people like my mum why do not I see people um, like my friends and that led me down all different paths around race and gender and class so you know, I think about all of these things together. And I think the big mechanism for me though, and having the platform that I have is definitely social media. And I made a Twitter account uh, the first day of my orientation in my undergrad in 2017. And um, one year later, I found myself on Q&A, which was surreal to say the least, the first time I'd ever done anything like that. And I really had no idea what to expect. I remember I had done, like, I just read newspapers. I thought it was all improv. And I found out later that people actually prepare for this and people had brought in like place cards to read as they were (laughs) on the program. And I was like, I didn't know that. So it was a big uh, learning journey. But from everything, it was really starting with the frame of what isn't being said in this conversation and coming at it from a young person's perspective. So, for example, in that first program, we talked about safe schools and there was a conversation about how someone made the claim that homophobia doesn't happen in schools. And I, as a young person, I could absolutely say it does. And that's how I try to approach everything the people who are watching that program and thinking, well, why isn't this getting discussed? I want to talk about it, particularly from young women's perspectives and also to show that we care deeply about politics and politics also affects us deeply.
0: I think many people will identify with what you're saying. They'll either have been where you are or have young people in their lives that sound a lot like you. But I want to ask you, because your trajectory is unusual, even though your passion and commitment to issues is not unusual at your age. Do you describe yourself as driven or do you think you've sort of accidentally fallen into this space?
1: I would describe myself as driven, but that's because I've really had to push in order to have the uh, opportunities and platform that I have today. And there are multiple reasons for that. I grew up in a family that really didn't have um, much money and was fortunate to get a scholarship to go to a great school. But outside of school really became the space for me to really push myself and to excel. And it was entirely self-driven. For my mom, it was always do whatever makes you happy. But I always felt that there was something bigger out there, something bigger that my parents never had the opportunity to ever do. And that led me down this path of education and really putting my heart and soul into it and not just education for the sake of it, but thinking, why is the world the way that it is? So I think um, for me, when I moved to Melbourne from Queensland, first of all, Melbourne was way more culturally diverse. In Queensland, there really weren't many people who uh, were people of color. And I kind of had, I don't know, played down that side of me because in an effort to fit in. But in Melbourne, I suddenly was able to access all these brilliant opportunities. And I took it with both hands. I would be, I was working in retail, but I would do volunteering part-time when I could after David my David Jones shifts on my gap year. So I think, and it's also the fact that Asian Australians and people of colour just were not represented in higher leadership. It's crazy even, you know, thinking back to 2017 to now, it really has improved a lot more growing up in the early 2000s, you would rarely see anybody who was culturally diverse when you'd switch on the TV or you'd look at politics. So for me, it's been having to be set the example for myself because I really didn't see people like me or my family talking about the things that affected our lives, like racism. And that's what drove me. It was trying to push through the class barriers and trying to think what else lay out there. And the world to me was huge and amazing and um, fascinating. I wanted to learn all about it. So I
0: I did. I want to talk about generational differences, particularly in the workplace. So many people listening will be saying, yes, please help me, Yasmin. I want to better understand how to manage uh, young people coming through in the environment that you just talked about. What do you think, if any, generational differences exist at the moment?
1: One of the biggest generational differences is that young people refuse to assimilate or be silent to daily injustice. And I think for women of previous generations, they were told to shut up and stay silent uh, in order to succeed in terms of career or to stop being harassed. They just had to to just be silent. And um, a lot of things were not, allowed to be questioned. It was not safe to question. And one of the benefits of things like the internet is that I think there's far more awareness of concepts like sexual harassment or concepts like racism or concepts of microaggressions or gaslighting. And I think young people are a lot more aware to these kind of tactics and can call it out. That doesn't mean that it's always safe for them to do so. But I've seen particularly even in my cohort speaking to Australians in my class, for example, talking about the lack of diversity in the workplace and saying, well, why is it that every single senior executive is white? And yet 50% of the graduating cohort are people of color. What's going on here? And that most definitely would have happened for previous generations. But I think now there's a real expectation that companies wouldn't keep doing this. Unfortunately, some businesses haven't moved with the times. And I think I sense a lot of frustration with young people entering that and saying, hang on, like, why is this still archaic? Like, why isn't it moving with what the world actually looks like? Or um, young people also expecting businesses to take stances on things. I remember during Black Lives Matter, there were a lot of people calling out brands for not issuing a statement or not having, like if it's clothing companies, not having models that are diverse. There's an expectation. The businesses will also keep up to date and be willing to be brave to speak about things that matter and things uh, that affect their employees and also their customers as well.
0: So you if I'm if I'm correct in hearing you, you're saying the key generational difference, and we're, we're talking about the the 20-year-olds, the, the Gen Z's, Gen Z's, is that not prepared to take things because that's the way they are, prepared to stand up and have a say, and particularly joining en masse to push for change. Do you think there's any gender differences? Do you think young men are thinking differently from young women, and if so, what does that look like? Obviously, it's different depending on
1: where you are, Um, depending on your income, things can look a lot different even between young men and women. But I do think a key difference is algorithms and what young men see when they open their social media feed is very, very different to what a young woman sees. And I noticed this actually with my little brother who's 15, just coming into his own trying to figure out who he is. And he was telling me about some of the content that he gets. And from a very young age, young men, just like previous generations, are instilled that they need to make a lot of money, that they need to be powerful, and they need to be completely independent and that it is weak to rely on others, and that they have to go to the gym and be very muscly, look very attractive. Fortunately, a lot of men, I'd hope anyway, can critically think about that the older that they get. But unfortunately, that is the norm that men have to unlearn, rather than examples of positive masculinity that they can learn from the get-go. And that is a challenge that I think parents, leaders, teachers, need to be aware of that this is the this is the content that young men are often receiving day in, day out that is presented as normal. But there's so many other ways of, so many other wonderful aspects of being a man that doesn't have to just be about making money and, make, and being the breadwinner. I think social media really has to, a lot to answer for and what messages they're sending to young men.
0: So I'm a leader of young men and women and I'm listening to you today. You make excellent points that I've got Quite gender distinct uh, messaging going to both groups, and I'm unaware of it as a leader of a diverse group of people. So, are you seeing the potential conflict in your life? Where, and I'm again, I'm I'm really looking to you for direction on this. But what you're saying suggests to me you're going to get the backlash. You're going to get the conflict. That that version of masculinity is setting up a conflict with the the version of the independent, outspoken, passionate, independent twenty year old woman. The internet is full of
1: conflicting ideas that don't make sense together. So we have we see hashtag Me Too, and then we see the treatment of Amber Heard. These are two things exist in the same space, and I think when there is a push on one front, including massive gains around feminism, there will be a counter pushback. The question is, how do we teach young people how to navigate that tension? And the unfortunate reality of my generation is we are siloed. A lot of the time we are siloed. And that is because particularly social media companies here are profiting off that silo, profiting off things that we get angry about or things that we enjoy or things that make us sad. And where we don't know how to speak to one another, that makes it very, very difficult to move through these kind of debates. And that is one positive of being here in Oxford, for example, and being in my class, because we have over 100 students from 60 different countries. And there have been very uncomfortable moments across regional conflicts, across identity politics. We had one conversation today where it was a queer activist in our class talking to a Mormon student around the ability of queer people to adopt kids in Utah, that was a really tough conversation, but we still had the conversation. And that's, I think, something that we can all work on is how do we hold spaces that are respectful and that are kind and that can talk about, talk through these things with care rather than immediately with anger. That's something that I'm always trying to reckon with myself doing this work because I've copped it and I've experienced troubling and I've experienced plenty of pushback, but there are also people who genuinely can be open-minded. We just need to have those conversations with them.
0: I think you raise a really excellent point and it's something we talk about um, on this podcast and at FW a lot is, and I did an interesting interview with Claire Kimball recently about opinion and opinion in the workplace. Do you have any strong recommendations about how to manage those respectful conversations and to keep that space open because my generation is thinking and feeling and I had this conversation with a very talented and uh, progressive friend who's spent a lot of time traveling in some of the most difficult parts of the world and she's feeling like she can't say anything anymore and we're all feeling a bit like that. Do you have any thoughts on that given that you are in such a melting pot in an intellectually curious environment? Well, the
1: wonderful thing about feminism, the more I learn about it, is that feminists never agree with each other. There's always (laughs) critique after critique after critique. And that's how things evolve. It's actually kind of wonderful. It's thinking, well, what about this thing? Or what are we missing here? But the difference there is that it's building towards something that works better for all of us. It's not just there to attack or undermine or critique or saying a response just to prove that we're right and not actually listening. But I do think, and something I've been thinking about in this course, is that in the 90s and 80s, there was a big focus on having difficult conversations with people that we don't agree with. And I agree that's important, but we also need to think about our history too. And the reality is that marginalized people carry a great burden in having to explain, for example, I'm thinking of First Nations people to try to explain why they need rights or try to explain why they should be perceived as equal to other human beings. That is a lot of burden to carry, and it's not the same as just person A speaking to person B. So before we have conversations, I think understanding the history and what actually shaped our worldview. Because we're not neutral actors, all of us are shaped by the messages that we're told and consume every day from when we were born to where we are now. We all have a position and at least acknowledging where we come from and really actively trying to understand why it is that we think that way and what is it that maybe we've missed in forming our worldview. I think that's a really important starting point. And for example, in Australia, you know, I can talk to, you know, a person A, person B talking about race, but what about if person B doesn't know about something like the white Australia policy? These are things that are really important to thinking about why we might have a gut instinct towards certain positions and... My hope, and I mean, even thinking about the referendum, despite the result, I still felt happy that it happened because it got people thinking about why we are the way that we are and who we are. And I think if we spend more time thinking about who we are as individuals, but as a nation as well, then we can have genuinely productive conversations about what our future
0: could look like. And that's very well put. One of the challenges I have is, is constantly thinking about the people that don't have the space or the background or the education or the community to which those conversations are common. So I guess what I'm trying to say is there are many people, men and women, who are just trying to do their best by raising a couple of kids and finding a house to live in in Australia right now. So, you know, I think it's very easy sometimes in my world and yours where we are constantly being challenged by these thoughts are to come to some understanding about how to develop the conversation. And The Voice is a really good example. But I worry that that's a conversation being happening between you and me, that there are a whole bunch of people listening to you and I talk right now and go, well, good for you too. But what about the fact that my rent's just gone up by $100 a week and my mortgage the chances of me ever having a mortgage is probably slipping away and i think that's that disparity between those two groups of people is really what is building the building the energy in these conversations i think it's complex
1: and i'm thinking about the referendum again and what i found really interesting is how particularly in electorates with a high population of chinese australians voted largely in favor of the referendum And there was a graph showing that typically when there were lower levels of education, it correlated to a no vote. But that was the anomaly. So even in those who are experiencing very real fears around things like rent and having enough money to put on the table, there are still very different experiences, even in those communities. And for some, you know, I'm thinking of my mom again. She got it. She gets what it feels like to not be heard. She gets what it feels like to not be represented in politics. It doesn't actually require that much of an explanation. But I also empathize that if you're just trying to go about your day-to-day, it can feel very difficult to think, or well, why should I care? But I would start with the fact that giving more rights to other people doesn't take yours away, at least in a, broad, in a broad sense. So if we can start with that, that actually moving towards equality really does help everyone. It makes everyone a lot mentally healthier. It makes a society that can show that it really cares for one another. And it's also a way to support you because if your daily life is thinking about how to pay your rent, I mean, that's not fair either. And, you know, there is ways that we can work together. Like I'm thinking of, um, you know, first-gen migrants and Australians from low-income backgrounds. There's actually probably a lot more similarities there that many communities don't actually have that conversation about the struggle of you know, trying to feed a family and, you know, you're working in aged care or another um, occupation that doesn't pay as much as its workers deserve. There is a lot of space for solidarity there. And I think I'd hope that we can build build something that we don't turn inwards, we look outwards. We think about how can I reach out and what do we have in common rather than what will you take away from me?
0: Let's talk about the lazy girl trend. So again, I'm managing a whole bunch of uh, highly talented young women and not about me personally, I'm channeling my listener and I'm watching the lazy girl trend and I'm starting to see a bit of it. I'm starting to see a bit of like, "Mm, no, my boundaries are this and I'm only going to do this. And where did this come from? I mean, you clearly not embraced it and can you explain it to our audience?
1: I actually didn't know what that was and then I Googled lazy girl trend. and from what I saw it is women, particularly on TikTok, uh, talking about roles that you can earn a decent pay with minimal effort and it's like
0: hashtag lazy girl. I am not surprised that you've never heard of that trend. Um, I'm sorry I interrupted you. It's not on my algorithm. (laughs) Um,
1: So I think there are different responses to this. I actually understand why something like that exists. And what it is, exists as is a very Gen Z way to push back against the argument that women, in order to be seen as legitimate and successful, need to be killing themselves by slaving away in a job in order to be seen as legitimate, that they have to be a high court justice or they have to be a president. And that is what feminism is. And I think in this almost tongue-in-cheek way, it's saying I deserve to live my life on my own terms. And I want a decent living. And I also want the ability to do the things that I want to do. But I do think there is also a legitimate challenge to the idea that it's lazy. And, you know, I did say it's tongue in cheek. But I also think maybe it's a symptom of a wider problem, that that is what is seen as lazy, even though it's perfectly justified to expect reasonable working hours or to not be expected to slave away at a desk. But the thing is that women actually haven't been allowed to have that. They were expected to be in the home, uh, which actually requires so much effort to raise a family and to do the care work. And then they were expected to take on these, you know, corporate jobs and be the neoliberal girl boss while doing all the stuff at home too. So they never had the chance to be lazy. (laughs) They weren't allowed to. So while I would challenge the word, I actually understand why it emerges. It emerges because I think more and more young women are criticizing the argument that feminism is just about climbing the ladders in the workplace. It's not. It's about being able to make the choices in our lives that would make us happy and make and care for ourselves and make us feel joy.
0: I used to hear a lot of criticism about millennials who are now between the ages of 30 and 42. So they're, you know, they're not, they're, you know, really, if not already running the country or organizations, they're they're about to be. But the conversation about Gen Z is now fully fledged and this group is between the ages of 11 and 26. And this is a group that does feel genuinely different to me Uh, and we touched on it at the beginning of the interview. Do you have a sense of that? Well,
1: I would be curious to see what you think of the differences because I feel like I'm in a bit of a bubble being in this generation. But, you know, I mentioned earlier about the expectations that businesses will make things like political stances and whatnot. You know, I think young people are a lot more hyper-aware about group identity. It's definitely moved away from individual self-actualization through, you know, uh, just, you know, working and, again, climbing the ranks. There is something group-based about it. There are pros and cons to that. The pros is that we're able to think more about things in a systemic way. And I see a lot of the radical Black feminist literature specifically around intersectionality and structural discrimination entering our vocab. So we can say that, you know, if somebody... Racism doesn't have to be somebody going up to someone on the street, which is definitely the mentality of early 2000s of an understanding of what racism was. Racism can be built into a country from its inception um, in colonization. It can be built into a constitution. It can be built into laws and over-policing. The same goes with sexism and other forms of discrimination. So that is the positive. And I think that means that young women no longer put a lot of blame on themselves. Like things like imposter syndrome a lot of young women are talking about how it actually is an imposter syndrome. It is feeling that I don't fit in here because you probably don't. It probably has been constructed in a way to make you feel less than and to make you feel like you don't actually have an equal voice in the room. But the downside is that there are silos. And I I think that if we can fall too deep into an expectation around, you know, what uh, an Asian Australian thinks or what a person from a low-income background thinks or believes, that we actually shut off listening from diverse opinions in that group. So that is the ongoing challenge. It's an ongoing balancing act.
0: So just to recap, you're saying that you think the differences in this generation are that they're prepared to speak up and challenge the norms, that they understand identity as more of a group rather than individual concept. Are there any others? And I'm I don't want to lead the witness here, but do you have any others before I throw a couple more at you? I mean, I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear it, but I do think young people are
1: a lot more sceptical of institutions. There was a Gallup poll that found that young people in Australia are at an all-time low in their faith in political institutions. And I think that is also because of the nature of the things that we talk about today. Often is, we don't see that reflected in politics, whether that be the combative nature of politics, party politics, the inability to actually solve things like climate change, there's a deep frustration there and a real cynicism, I think, towards what leaders are saying in the sense that it was different in previous times when it could just be published you know, in mainstream media outlets and there was less sources. So there is a lot more critical opinions out there. And I think young people are very sensitive to who's actually coming, who's actually passing the pub test here, who's actually seeming authentic versus giving the scripted lines. And I think more than ever, young people are looking for for people who are actually willing to, first of all, admit that they're wrong, but second of all, make a genuine and authentic effort to connect with uh, young people and, and speak the truth, not
0: just sticking to political lines. So, yes, that, that extends not just um, to our political leaders and our institutions, but it actually extends to leaders, full stop, in any organisation. For mine, an observation would be a much greater awareness of mental health issues and that being completely acceptable as a, a conversation, whether it be in the office with the boss and with friends. Whereas I think earlier generations uh, either didn't recognize it or diagnose it or have any clue. Or if they did, there was some shame attached to it. But that seems to be almost non existent. Is, is that a fair yes? Completely fair. And, you know, the amount of times I hear words like
1: intergenerational trauma from my friends. I can't even imagine like what it must have been like for previous generations. And honestly, I feel like a lot of the time we're doing the cleanup work mental health wise for what our parents or grandparents or great grandparents didn't do themselves. But I think overall that awareness is a really wonderful thing. I think if everybody got therapy, the world would be way better. (laughs) I sometimes think about these warmongers and I'm like, do you ever just talk to a (laughs) counsellor rather than starting a war? I was in
0: a a room, I'm not going to give too many details because everyone will know exactly what I'm talking about, but I was in a room recently where two out of three people were talking about their psychiatrist and when they were getting appointments, which only uh, reminded me of how difficult it is to get an appointment with a psychiatrist. So whenever I'm talking to someone who I think actually could do with assistance, I know I'm, you know, I'm giving excellent advice, but the medical profession is struggling under the weight of a sudden influx of people really having a much greater understanding of these issues. The other, for me, key difference is identity generally, um, particularly around sexual identity. That is just shifted dramatically in a workplace. And certainly amongst any of the You know, the 11 to 20-year-olds that I know, they are completely unsurprised by the sorts of conversation, the sorts of shifts in that space that leave my generation wildly bemused about what's going on.
1: Yeah, I I really think, and it's funny that I didn't even think about that because it is so normalised. I kind of forget what it used to be like. And I think young people are, you know, way less attached to ideas of binary gender Honestly, I think it's almost like life is too short. I have too many things to think about. You know, we've got a cost of living crisis, got climate change. Why on earth would I care about what pronouns somebody uses? And I mean, I really think that's the mentality of my generation. It's it's just not a big deal. And of course, that is, you know, again, a generalizing statement. I talked about algorithms. There's plenty of very toxic algorithms around gender identity.
0: I'm not going to pretend there
1: isn't. But I think as a whole, we're just not that fussed about it.
0: You have a broad range of interests and vantage points. You're coming to us from London right now. What issues do you think will dominate workplaces of the future?
1: It's tricky to say. I would go back to the expectation that workplaces will engage with politics. The challenge, I think, with workplaces is, how do you do that? How do you actually convene a space that is able to talk about sensitive matters? But I think the positive way is, you know, I mentioned the silos and the challenges of the fact that my generation, to be honest, rarely speaks to one another across divides um, because it can be very, very difficult to do so. It can be toxic. It can be very emotionally challenging. So how can workplaces be able to convene these kind of conversations in a way that everybody feels like they're working towards something that we can get behind, something that makes us feel like we have a purpose, something that while we can have differences, we want to work towards them because we want to create something better. And I think that can actually do a lot of good. And I've seen it happen here in the UK, in the courses that I do. And how I've also seen how difficult it is and how much iteration it requires. But I think gone are the days in which we just don't talk about things. And to get it out there in the open and to really give platform to people with lived experience um, is really essential. And I think actually speaking on that point, a lot of CEOs talk about things like diversity, and, but then it re- falls on the diverse employees to raise that issue and to be the ones to advocate for that. And I think it's up to leaders now to search for the information themselves, to seek to understand and not sit back and let people who have experience of this discrimination to host the events or to raise the issue with the boss or to try to convince them that there should be more diversity in a higher leadership level there really needs to be more proactivity and a real understanding of how to build build an equitable and inclusive culture. And that requires leaders to walk the walk, not just talk the talk.
0: I'm going to ask you controversially because it just, this stuff is constantly at the forefront of my mind and that of many people who run businesses in this country. If the organisation that you're working for, creates the environment, has the conversation and decides to do something that is at odds with you personally, your values and what you argued. What do you do in that circumstance? I think it depends on what
1: the issue is. I mean, I think the referendum was one where companies said, you know, we support the yes and that there are different people in there that disagree. But I think the real question is about the process. Has there been actually efforts to convene a space of hearing one another? And I think you can probably sense what that would lead to, whether that is a, most people are like, I really want you to speak up on this. And a small minority is saying, you know, I don't want to do this versus something that seems very mixed. I mean, there's also a responsibility of organizations to bring that information, like external information to that space as well. Like I'm thinking again of the referendum and thinking about people who are working on this. They often come into workplaces and talk about what is this thing actually about. So, you know, I think if it was something that was handled with care, something that was communicated with the company, something that tried to build a culture of trust, tried to build in a culture of listening to one another. That's very different to going ahead and doing something where nobody has had been consulted and doesn't feel represented. So I really think it's more demonstrated by a workplace's actions and intent in engaging with that. Because that's the thing, I think sometimes it's like, we can agree, but I'm thinking on like a personal level now. We can disagree, but the difference is, do I feel heard? Did did I feel listened to? Or do I just feel spoken over and ignored? It's so a it's a fine line. I'm not saying it's an easy one, but I do think the process is really what matters.
0: And I think you make an excellent point. But I also I'm thinking about an organization like a bank with fifty thousand people. You know, and I and I think what you're you're saying is there'll be possibly and I'm, you know, exaggerating here if it's got fifty five thousand people, fifty thousand people are not going to engage because they are trying to get the train into work, so then you've got a smaller pool of people who care, and that's where consensus could potentially be built. You know this is a, a really fundamental issue that so many organizations are wrestling with. yes, I do hope you get to CEO of a company one day so you can have the fun of this. <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, it's. I, mean, I can imagine even things like International Women's Day yeah. would have been super controversial. It's like, why are we talking about this? We're just a bank.
0: But it's like, well, a lot of your employees are women. I can run you through what happens on International Women's Day. Well, the sorts of things, right? It's a lot of white women, very privileged. So then you do something that's got a lot of diversity And then there won't be the right diversity. And then we do cupcakes. No one really wants cupcakes because the women got to order the cupcakes. Uh, And then the men turn up and then they say something really helpful like when's International Men's Day? And I say things like, it's in November. Because it is. And (laughs) And that just, you know, immediately puts them you know, on the back foot and you've just humiliated them, so you've upset them and so you go to your event and no men turn up and someone stands up and says, I'd be really good at men, more men turned up. And, you know, we do it again next year. It's a really good example because it's so well established and it's almost always incredibly uplifting and I think at FWE we run three International Women's Day events successfully, one completely handed over to First Nations women but look, it's it's open for plenty of scrutiny. There's no doubt about that. I mean, I think the question is like, what is your purpose here? And I
1: don't think it makes sense for businesses to just like have a stance on every little thing under the sun. I mean, obviously that wouldn't make sense. But I think when it's something that this is what, you know, this is who you're meant to be serving or this is who your workplace people in this are, you know, from this background in your workplace, I think that is an obligation that you have to talk about these things. Because otherwise, the people in your workplace or the people that you're serving are copying the discrimination and the abuse and um, they have to face it alone. And I think there comes a point where you have to take a stand and that requires not just, you know, a once-off event, but it requires a a culture shift. And, you know, (laughs) banks are a tricky one. I don't think I have a good answer to that because it's not exactly a female-friendly, equitable place when I think about what a typical bank might look like. But I do think it does require organisations to draw a line in the sand and say, this is what we stand for, this is what we won't tolerate.
0: And again, we're wildly off track. But on the bank um, example, they actually are really well-funded, right? So they actually have the financial means to put time into these sort of issues. And they do. But to the broader argument about you're a business that works in the gender space, doesn't necessarily work in every other space like the voice, the referendum. Um, How do you convene a conversation that is hearing diverse views and opinions, particularly when it's personal? It's deeply personal for some people. I don't think we're going to solve all that today. (laughs) How would you describe your leadership style? Ooh, interesting question
1: um I'm not a big talker I don't know I notice a, a lot of Asian Australians we we often aren't and I think that's I kind of think we very consciously try to make an intervention only when we really feel like we have something to contribute I actually think it's a really good skill I think more people need to learn that if I'm honest I think some people like the sound of their voice too much I much prefer to listen and um, I guess leading the campaign that I'm leading at Oxford the welfare of the students that I work with is paramount. And as a leader, I'm very happy to take the fall if and where it's required. You know, we're advocating towards the university, which has all the money and all the power. So there's risk there on a student level. But for me, their welfare is paramount. It's also if you have any concerns or problems or anything, any ideas, I'm always willing to listen to them. And I try to be as open-minded as possible because if there isn't a culture of safety to speak up, then people just feel that frustration and feel like they can't say anything and it just brews. And what's the use in that? So working, you know, thinking about the work that I'm doing in sexual violence, it's a also a very intersectional problem, particularly affects uh, people from low income backgrounds, people who are queer, people who are diverse. Um, so there are always different ways of seeing these problems. And, you know, I try my best to always be convening a very diverse space with diverse backgrounds and experiences in this problem to see it differently. You know, that's what I was talking about, about working towards something. Despite diverse opinions in in all of the spaces that I've been in, we are working towards something, whether it be getting more young people into politics, having a safe campus. This is something that we can all agree is important and valuable. And while we might differ in ways to get there, I think we have genuine care and trust in one another. And that's the space I'll always try to convene as a leader.
0: What about the future for you? What are you working towards ultimately?
1: As as I mentioned, a lot of my work has been around intersectional public policy. And when I went to the Jobs and Skills Summit, I was amazed to hear the word gender lens. I never thought we'd get there. I really didn't. And that was amazing. And it shows that we are able to think about lenses and to think about viewing problems in different ways, because it isn't just thinking about women, it's actually thinking how we think. So I'd hope to be bringing all the knowledge that I'm getting back in the UK over to Australia around how do we think about the ethnic pay gap or how do we think about how disabled women are represented in the budget. These are the conversations that I um, want to be supporting and amplifying and working on how we can think intersectionally and differently about these problems. So in terms of a specific job, still thinking about it, but that is
0: the purpose that I want to be following. There was plenty of speculation at the Jobs and Skills Summit that you will eventually run for office. Uh, and I have no doubt that you've been approached, you know, or been, you know, dangled in front of you. How do you feel about taking that, that step, which is not an insubstantial one? You know,
1: I do a lot of advocacy around why young people should go for politics. So I think it would be strange if I said, absolutely not. It's too toxic and I'm not going to go into it but it is a big question mark because something that I'm open to, I think I would love to represent diverse voices and interests in parliament, but it is a pretty brutal place. I think I'm going to see how the political landscape will change. I do have hope that it's changing. I really think that things are evolving far more than I could have ever expected when I first started this journey, even in 2017. So it is definitely something I'm open to, but I'm also
0: going to see how life plays out. I show your a review that it has improved. And um it's still tough. I want to finish on the comment you made at the beginning, and that you've seen the advancement in, in gender issues in Australia. Tell me, give us finish on a on a high. Tell us what you see as advancement and why you feel good about that bit. I think in multiple
1: areas, but I mentioned March for Justice, and when that happened in 2021, I was standing outside of Parliament House with Brittany Higgins and many other, fan, you know, fantastic um, feminist advocates, um, many survivors. And we were heartbroken at the response by political leaders. And for me, it was a real moment where, where this this space that I always admired as a kid, thought was a place for change, has done nothing in terms of actually pursuing justice and actually walking the walk. So that was a very low moment. But, you know, I mentioned the Jobs and Skills Summit, And the first panel was about women's economic inclusion. And that was a really big priority. And I thought that actually gave me a lot of hope because, you know, here in the UK, I can't say the same about attitudes to change and how fast the political process can move. Things here are ingrained for centuries. And that is one of the benefits that we have as a country, despite problems, is that I do believe that we can move because it hasn't gotten so polarized we were unable to talk about it. I really think that we can we can still evolve with these problems, and you know I, I feel like I, I see gender mentioned so much more across government policy in business. Um, there's a ton of resources towards it. There's way more data, gendered data. There's way more comprehensive gendered policy, and that's really exciting. And it, for me, it gives me hope that we can do that in other areas as well. So to me, this is just the start, and this is an opportunity and an open door to keep pushing forward in advancing equity across policy. Across data, across how businesses talk about problems, across how we see the world and how we see Australia. So I am optimistic.
0: Yasmin, Paul, Australia is lucky to have a woman of your quality and thoughtfulness in it. Your mum must be incredibly proud of you. And uh, I really look forward to watching your career. Um, And to anyone who's just uh, listened to this podcast, you know, like I do, that we're going to hear a lot more of this young woman. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin, series producer is Holly Mitchell, and audio imaging by Nat Marshall.